3: Hi, everyone. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast podcast. I'm Dennis Funk, and I'm here with da da Gwen Mackside, host of Resound.
4: <laughs> hello, hello.
3: And I know it's that time of year where a lot of people are asking for money for, you know, what they do, their project. Um, and, you know, we hope that Third Coast is something that's important to you.
4: Absolutely. We know that you're getting asked for a lot of things, but Third Coast is a small but mighty organization that is only three full-time people who put out so much work, the conference, the radio show, the competition, short docs, uh, always changing and growing to bring you the best and what we really, really value is the quality of work heard around the world. We curate it for you, and we think that that's worth a lot. We hope that you do too.
3: Yeah, I think there's so much out there now that I feel like we're more important than ever. Having somewhere to go to say, okay, what should I be listening to? What are the shows I need to be following? What are the just the good stories from those shows?
4: Absolutely. It's impossible to listen to everything. That's why we have all of us doing the best job we can putting our ears to everything thing. It's such a big job.
3: Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much for listening and for downloading this podcast. If you donate, thank you very much. If you want to make a contribution, you can go to thirdcoastfestival.org where you'll find a link that says donate. And I should also mention that everyone who donates this year will get a link to the video of Manual Cinema's performance of this year's short docs. Which it is, is so cool. It is. It's so amazing. Like Even if you'd give just a little bit just to be able to see that. I Absolutely. Think it's, I think it's so worth it.
4: Worth it in and of itself.
3: Yeah. All right. Cheers. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Well, we said that at the same time.
4: Jinx! From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxai and this is Best of the Best, the 2016 Third Coast Festival broadcast. Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year, winners of our 16th annual Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. The Third Coast Festival is an independent arts organization dedicated to great radio, heart, soul, and ears. We gather the best stories from around the world all year long and share them in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, at live listening events, and honestly, every other way we can think of. We also host a worldwide competition to honor the very best audio documentaries of the year. This year, we received more than 550 entries from all over the world. Then we asked our most distinguished colleagues to gather for the impossible job of judging this great work. Much hand wringing ensued. Ten won top honors. On this special broadcast, we bring you the winning stories and behind-the-scenes interviews with the makers of this remarkable work. Awards are mostly given to serious work, as seriousness is often associated with quality. But we know that there are people making work that is out for fun, and we want to encourage more of it, which is why we decided a few years ago to take a moment to celebrate the unserious the fun, goofy, strange, I made it because I really, really wanted to work. We call it the Skylarking Award, and this year we were treated to comedian W. Kamau Bell talking to his mother about what else? Her sex life. Here's producer Hilary Frank. So here's the situation. Kamau's parents, they were never
5: married. Walter works in insurance. At one time he was actually the insurance commissioner of the
2: state of Alabama. That's where he lives, which is not a state where Kamau's mom ever lived.
1: And so as a kid, it was just me and you most of the time. I used to see him in the summers. Yeah. And
6: And in in the summers is when I had my fun. (laughs) Yeah, Madeline and I.
1: Yes, Madeline, that's right.
6: Madeline was Janet's best friend in Boston.
1: And Courtney is her son, who we were sort of forced to be friends because our parents were friends.
6: Well, yes. (laughs) Yep, when you and Courtney went away for the summer, party time and also, sometimes in the winters, remember how some weekends you would go to Courtney's house? Yeah. And other weekends he would come to your house? Yeah. Uh, sometimes in the winters, <laughs> we partied a little bit.
1: So, so you guys would trade would trade would you. Would you That's take right. my kid this weekend, I'll take uh, your kid next week. There you go. Mm-hmm. And where would you meet men?
6: Well, you know, we had telephones back then too. We didn't have cell
1: phones, but we had telephones. <laughs> but you weren't calling people randomly out of the phone book, I No, was.
6: no, no, no. These would be men that we knew or, okay. you know.
1: But where would you meet them initially to know them?
6: I'm trying to think about that. I remember that there used to be a club in Boston where um, young black professionals hung out a lot. Really? Yeah.
1: Do you remember what it was called? Yes, I do. Was it called the NAACP? No,
6: <laughs> no. No. There was a basketball player who played for the Celtics many years ago, yeah. Satch Sanders. Okay. And I th- it was either called Satch's Place or something like that, okay. but I think I was pretty sure it was his club. Oh, okay. All right. And I didn't know you were going to clubs. Oh, yeah. Like, like would you go out and dance? Yeah.
1: What? Kamau was a human being. <laughs> no, you weren't. You were a mother. <laughs> you would go dancing? I, can't, I just can't imagine. I mean, I guess I can, but I
6: just never thought of you. Were you, were you drinking? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was never a real heavy drinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And you would go to the club and dance mm-hmm. and rub up on men? Yeah. Okay, that's enough of that.
4: <laughs> w. Kamau Bell asks his mom about sex was produced by Hilary Frank with Abigail Keel and edited by Peter Clowney for The Longest Shortest Time, a podcast about parenting. It's the winner of our 2016 Skylarking Award. Our judges said, we chose this piece because we loved listening in on a conversation we'd never heard before. Surprising, funny, and sometimes cringeworthy. This year, we added a new award to honor all the great work produced worldwide in languages other than English. So in 2016, we invited makers to compete for Best Documentary, Foreign Language. Our very first foreign language winner comes from Denmark. It tells the story of two young men, both named Thomas Anderson, whose lives crossed paths as teenagers one night on the streets of a small town called Viborg. They met each other at a pizzeria, got into an argument, and one Thomas took revenge on the other by running him over in his car. The injured Thomas wound up in a coma but survived. Now he returns to Viborg to find out what actually happened that night. Here's a short excerpt of Thomas introducing the story, just to give you a sense of what it sounds like since it's in Danish.
7: Det er men jeg kan ikke huske noget det her.
8: Vi tror, han er ramt bagfra. Det tyder uh, de spor på, vi har på selve bilen. Altså, han er gående ud af vejen, og så er bilen kommet og ramt ham bagfra. Og så er han blevet transporteret i styk med af bilen, inden han falder ned.
7: Den 17-årige er overført til Aalborg Sygehus med åbent kranjebrud og blødninger i hjernen. Dengang gik jeg i 2. på gymnasiet i Viborg. Jeg spillede guitar i et par gymnasiebands, drej gøl og, og hang med vennerne, skrev latinopgaver af fra Morten B.P., og havde det hele taget en klassisk ubekymrede gymnasietilværelse. Elisten, en 22-årig mand, meldte sig selv til politiet kort efter påkørslen. Han har forklaret, at han tidligere på natten var blevet slået og sparket af den 17 arig Jeg havde været i byen med et par venner den aften, og jeg havde fået fortalt, at vi kom i et mindre slagsmål med en anden gruppe drenge, og at vi stak af en
4: taxa. That was a sampling of The Double with Thomas Anderson, edited by Tim Hinman and Christer Moltson for Third Ear Ex-Politikin. Here's Thomas's acceptance speech from the Third Coast Festival Awards held this past November in Chicago.
7: Incredible. I'm of course going to do this uh, speech in Danish, so... <laughs> I want to thank uh, the judges... I want to thank um, my family and friends because they've been a big part of this process of making this, this story. Um, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that my story from my hometown Vibor in Denmark, would end up in Chicago. That's really amazing. Um, I mean, it's, 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 for me, it's like a journey back in time to, to, to the darkest Days in my life. And, um, and the process of this has really been like therapy. And I just want to say that, like, um, just, just the fact that, that telling story, stories in audio can have that effect is, uh, just, just makes me really, really happy. So thank you. Thank you.
4: That was Thomas Arendt Anderson, co producer of The Double which won the very first Third Coast Best Documentary Foreign Language Award. For this new award, we teamed up with the website Radio Atlas, who made a subtitled video version of this documentary so you can follow along as you listen. It's a beautiful way to enjoy the entire story, and you can find a link to it at thirdcoastfestival.org. In the world of news production, it's all about speed and accuracy. There often isn't time for setting the scene and filling it with sound, but it doesn't have to be that way. The Third Coast Best News Feature Award was created to honor the news stories that go beyond the who, what, where, when, and how. This year's winner does just that. A carjacking in Milwaukee resulted in a car chase, a car crash, a foot chase, and a gunfight between a white police officer and a black defendant in which both men were shot. DeAndre Wise was found guilty of carjacking and attempted homicide. What follows is a fly-on-the-wall peek into his sentencing hearing, where both men are seen in a different light. Here's reporter Emily Foreman.
2: There aren't any seats left in the courtroom gallery. Half of the Glendale Police Department fills the pew-style benches. They're there to support Officer Eric Guzzi. He's in the gallery, too, gripping a sheet of notes. The gallery is for spectators, and the court scene takes place on the other side of a clear, bulletproof partition. The proceedings pipe through an intercom in the ceiling. Uh, um, Judge Frederick C. Rosa invites about a dozen Glendale cops to sit in the jury box beyond the partition to make room for DeAndre Wise's family and friends in the gallery.
1: Well, we
4: we'll just might as well get in
2: there. So DeAndre's supporters sit on one side, and Officer Guzzi's supporters consolidate on the other. Kind of like what you'd see at a wedding. Two sides separated by an aisle. 29-year-old DeAndre Wise enters through a side door, separate from the gallery. He's wearing an orange jumpsuit. His hands are cuffed to a chain around his waist. An officer grips his arm above the elbow and leads him to the table where his defense attorney, Bridget Crowsey, waits. A news photographer in the gallery leans as far forward as the plexiglass permits to capture DeAndre's entry. And the sentencing starts.
0: Uh, are both sides ready to proceed to sentencing today? The state is prepared. We're
2: prepared. Before August 1, 2015, Officer Eric Guzzi and DeAndre Wise appear to have little in common, except that they're both dads. But now they share 10 life-changing minutes the dash cam and Officer Guzzi's squad car captured all of it. Officer Guzzi narrates the video, now playing in the courtroom. He's
0: loading a semi-automatic AK-47 type rifle. I saw it right away.
2: You can see DeAndre Wise's back. He runs onto the crowded playground, around a building, and out of view.
0: As you see me go around the building, you'll see puffs of smoke as the, his rounds start hitting that building.
2: Almost hit that girl. The girl jumps back to dodge a bullet and Judge Rosa winces. Then Officer Guzzi sits down next to the district attorney to read his statement.
0: The car chase, the gun battle, the foot chase, the feeling of being lost and alone and not knowing where I was with blood dripping into my eyes.
2: The blood was from a graze wound.
0: I replayed the events of that day in my head almost every day since.
2: He tells the court that talking to a counselor has been helpful, and his wife watches from the gallery. The woman next to her holds her throughout the sentencing.
0: I'm thankful that my children are too young to understand what that they nearly lost their dad. I ask you, Judge, please take into consideration everything I have told you. I know that D.A. Stingles recommended forty years. I ask that you consider the max.
2: DeAndre Wise is 29, so in 40 years, he'd be 69. Officer Guzzi has a one-year-old son and wants to make sure that his son is an adult before DeAndre Wise gets out. Which also means DeAndre Wise's son would be grown then, too. DeAndre's younger sister also makes a statement.
9: Marielis Wise. M-A-R-Y hyphen capital A.
2: Because Wise doesn't want her nephew to grow up without his dad. Like she did
9: first of all, I would just like to say that um I'm not trying to downplay anything that has happened to you, Officer Uzi, on behalf of our family. We would like to say sorry for anything that you're going through, and I hope you find a peace and healing uh, going through this, but also that my brother is also a father who is very active in my nephew's life. He's not someone
2: Mary Ellis Wise says DeAndre helped raise her and her other brother
9: so My brother was obviously going through something that day, and I don't believe his intention was to. Hurt you? I believe he wanted you to hurt him. On that same day, August 1st, he was at my cousin's house and he was talking about committing suicide.
2: DeAndre Wise's attorney, Bridget Crowsey, also says DeAndre told her that he had intended to commit suicide that day in a Porsche. But that's not what happened.
8: Mr. Wise tells me how long he didn't want to hurt the officer, but he did shoot in the direction of the officer
2: multiple times. Attorney Crowsey had a doctor evaluate DeAndre's mental health. This was the first time a professional put a name to what was brewing inside of him, emotionally unstable personality disorder. The doctor recommended long-term psychotherapy.
8: Luckily, the injuries of the officer, I believe, were abrasions and a laceration to his left
0: cheek.
2: That's Judge Rosa again. He
0: almost shot a child, also.
8: I I understand that there was a child that had been there, Judge. I don't think his intent was to shoot a child. Uh, I understand uh, that this was extremely... The
0: point I'm making is... In looking at the video, uh, he's shooting at the officer. Uh, The child is in the park playing and running, and the bullet literally ricocheted in front of her, and she stopped and turned and ran the other way. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the officer wasn't uh, the only person being shot at.
2: For the sake of the court reporters, the judge calls for a break.
0: Okay, 10-minute recess.
2: Recess ends and although DeAndre already pled guilty he chooses to address the court
0: all right go ahead
6: sir I want to apologize to those I have hurt, from the salesman down to the police officer (laughs) I never intended to put decent people in harm's way I reacted off total emotion in which in the end it felt as if no one could help me it seemed it's, it just seemed like no, I worked so hard to get nowhere, really wish, really never thought I would fail the test of life, mainly. Please, Judge, don't take my life from me. I really wasn't an, an attentive parent and got sidetracked by all the bad that was happening to me and around me.
0: Okay. Thank you for your statement. So um, in fashioning a sentence, the court's responsibility is to look at the gravity of the offenses, uh, look at your character, uh, look at the need to protect the public. The
2: The judge walks through his considerations point by point. The young girl dodging bullets on the playground, traumatized car salesman, the fact that DeAndre was convicted of an armed robbery at 16, his first-time mental health diagnosis, DeAndre's involvement at his son's school. Um,
0: obviously, your family cares about you. Uh, they're here, uh, they support you. Uh, but other than being able to tell the court uh, some of the things uh, that you mean to them, uh, there's not much that they can do to influence the outcome today. And so, uh, in a sense, your family goes through this sentencing process with you.
2: 30 minutes later, Judge Rosa issues his sentence for the carjacking, eight years in prison. And the attempted homicide count?
0: Uh, A 35-year sentence to be divided as 25 years initial, 10 years of extended supervision.
2: It's off mic, but you can faintly hear DeAndre tally up his sentences. 33 years. And it's over. He's escorted to an elevator outside the courtroom. Through the frosted window in the hall, you can see blurry orange, DeAndre's jumpsuit. His sobs fade as the elevator goes down. People silently trickle out into the hall. The Glendale officers form two long lines on either side. And then the elevator goes up, and the frosted door opens. And another black man, wearing orange, steps out. He's led past the Glendale cops, handcuffs locked to a chain around his waist. Moments later, Officer Guzzi walks out into the hall. He takes his time embracing every Glendale police officer. And when he gets to the end of the line, he breaks down crying. He takes a moment to compose himself before stepping in front of the TV camera.
9: Officer Guzzi, an emotional day, obviously. How are you feeling?
7: I've had better days, but I'm doing, I'm doing okay.
4: A Sentencing Hearing was produced by Emily Foreman with editor Celeste Wesson for Precious Lives from WNOV and WUWM in Milwaukee. It's the winner of the 2016 Third Coast Best News Feature Award. Our judges said, We chose this piece because it achieved such a remarkable storytelling feat. It takes a seemingly one-dimensional scene and brings it to life with excellent writing, vivid imagery, and judicious use of sound. Teenagers often complain that their voices are not heard. But WNYC's Radio Rookies tries to change that. They provide teens with the tools and training to create radio stories about themselves, their communities, and their world. This year, our Bronze Award goes to one of their stories. It's an unusually frank glimpse into the thinking of a young woman caught up in a complicated relationship that she knows is unhealthy, but she can't leave. It's called, Why Do I Stay?
3: You recording? Yeah, she's
5: recording. I'm recording. This is live recording coming from West Brooklyn's community AC office. I started reporting the story in the fall of 2013. This is... Radio Rookie, Lorraine, reporting live. I hadn't really been going to school for over two and a half years, so I transferred to an alternative high school for kids who dropped out but are trying to come back and graduate. We all have assigned counselors. We call them ACs. Okay, so I'm here with my own AC, Elizabeth. They check in with us every day. So um, how have I been as a student?
9: Lorraine, when I first started, Lorraine was only a name on my roster because she would never come to school and now she's here every day, she's doing what she needs to do, and she's a potential June graduate.
5: Definite June graduate, clear that up, (laughs) you know,
9: gotta clear that one up.
5: Since I never came to school when I first transferred here, Elizabeth only knew me by my school ID picture.
9: So my first impression of you, I saw your picture. I saw a little girl in size with a black eye. So I thought to myself, what's going on? I said, did you get into a fight? And you said no, but you were like, huh, it's a long story. You'll get to know me.
5: I had a black eye for the whole first week. I thought people were thinking that I got beat up by a girl or something. I am soft.
4: Do the dance. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Nicole's my best friend. But I call her my stepsister because my mom and her dad used to date. We all live together, kind of like a family. I'm the only one who calls her Nicole. Everyone else calls her by her nickname. My name's Nikki Boombox, but no, I'm sorry. <laughs> she was with me when I first met... Mm, I don't want to use his actual name. What should his name be in my story? Doo-doo <laughs> I'm going to call him Tony, the guy who became my first serious boyfriend. I met him the summer after eighth grade. By the time we started dating, I was 14, and he was 21. Six years, six months, and six days older than me. 666. It's creepy, right? Nicole remembers when we met him.
9: But in the beginning, don't get me wrong, he fooled me too. He fooled all of us. I really thought he was actually really good. I was like, oh my God, he's really nice. I would never expect him to actually ever lay a hand on you. So what do you think drew me to him in the first place? Like what made me start liking him? His looks. Can't deny The fact that he's older.
5: He's short, with tan skin, big pretty eyes, and an Italian schnoz. He has tattoos and a clean cut beard. When you think of that arrogant guy that all the girls want, that's Tony. He walks with confidence, dresses flashy, and wears big chains.
9: But he also made you feel like you were special, like you were wanted. He was actually putting some effort into it. He would text you back. He would pick you up from the school. He didn't even try to kiss you the first time you hung out. The poems, the song, the rap he made on Facebook. He made a video of it. Yeah.
5: The lyrics went something like, Don't worry, baby, it doesn't matter about the age. Back then, Nicole took a video of me watching it. Oh my I really couldn't stop smiling. Or as Nicole would say, cheesing OD. Wow, okay. No, you're cheesing OD. I've never seen
9: you cheese like that.
5: When we first got together, he liked that I was smart and young and pretty. He wanted to shape me into his perfect wifey before I got to the age where he says girls become whores. I was getting 90s when I started the ninth grade. I would show him my report card, but he didn't pay it any mind. He just saw high school as a place for guys to bag girls. He didn't tell me to skip school. He just punished me when I went. He'd ignore me after I came back or show up at school and flirt with girls in front of me. So I just hung out with him in his room all day instead of going to class. I didn't want to think I was cheating. I wasn't even talking to Nicole.
9: Everything you thought was just about him. Like, you just completely stopped caring about everything, and he really had that control over you. How did I look back look? then? <laughs> you look like a ghost. <laughs> completely dead, skinny as hell. It's like you still look good, don't get me wrong, but you still had that dead look in your face, like you weren't happy at all.
5: He was verbally abusive way before he became physically abusive. He talked to me so nasty that I could feel it. The bruises clear up, but the words stick with you, and they change how you act. He would tell me, you're boring, you're awkward, you're the weirdest of the weird, you'll never fit in anywhere, and I believed him. I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere, I didn't talk to anyone anymore, including my mom. I lied to her about how old he was and started coming home late. Or not at all.
4: I was livered, man. I wanted you home.
5: This is my mom. She used to be a drug addict, but she's been clean for 10 years now. She's pretty ditzy and forgetful, but she's definitely there for me. What were you doing then?
7: Worrying. Cursing.
4: Yelling.
5: At me. At you. At him. Try punishing me, taking my things away.
4: Punishment, taking your things away. It didn't matter.
5: Nothing she did worked, because I wouldn't let it. She knew I was the only one that could stop myself from seeing him. The first time he hit me was because I was looking through his Facebook. I caught him messaging his ex, so he slapped me across the face. He was yelling at me, telling me to get out. It escalated from there. Then, one night, two years into our relationship, we went to his friend's birthday and he got really drunk. I went to sleep at his place and woke up to him pouring water on my face and dragging me out of bed by my hair. He was yelling and calling me names, like a dirty whore and a slut and a piece of trash. He slapped me and grabbed things from around the room, like lighters and medicine bottles, and threw them at me. He was screaming that he hopes my mom dies. I had choke marks on my neck. But he wasn't really choking me to cut off oxygen. It was more like choking me to grab me and throw me around. After he did that, I went over to Nicole's. My mom showed up there and started freaking out and crying when she saw me. So I walked down the block to my friend Steven's house.
7: You came, and then I seen you. And once I seen you, I just felt bad. And then you started crying, and you told me you didn't see it yet. So... Brought you in my bathroom, and I made you look, and you didn't want to look at it. So I told you we weren't leaving until you looked at it.
5: When I looked in the mirror, I saw a face covered in tears, red and swollen, with blue marks on my cheeks, under my eyes, on my neck, and on my arms. I just couldn't believe I was looking at my own reflection.
3: When
4: he hit you, I wanted to have him arrested, but you wouldn't let me.
5: My mom promised me she wouldn't call the police, but it was a trick because she knew my brother would.
4: They came, they tried to talk to you, but you wouldn't give him up. I saw the cop
5: car outside, so I hid in the bathroom. The cop stood outside the door and kept asking me if I got hit. He was like, just say yeah, that's all you have to say. I said no, so they didn't press charges. Would you guys, you guys filed a report or something? Would you guys do?
4: No, they wouldn't let us file a report. We tried to, uh, any which way, get him for something and we couldn't because you were over 16. There's no proof that he was having sex with you before that age, so I couldn't have him arrested. Mm-hmm. They told me I needed to go to the DA, so I called the DA. And they didn't like want to be bothered with it because it was consensual, which isn't the law. The law is that he's an adult and he shouldn't have been having sex with you. That's the law, and he should have went to jail.
5: After that happened, he and I didn't talk for a week. Then he showed up at my school. He had this really sad face on. He brought me a burger. He doesn't know how to say sorry, so I guess the whole act was kind of like an apology. We walked around the neighborhood for a couple of hours. He played one of those toy vending machine games with the arm, and he got me a baby blanket with a dog head and tail. It wasn't much, but the look on his face was just so sad that, I don't know, it convinced me to go back. He was overly nice at first. Extra big smiles, longer kisses. But then he started talking about how you got to put your
4: girl in her place. That was an excerpt from Why Do I Stay? Produced by Rainey, Courtney Stein, and Kari Pitkin with Sean Cole for This American Life. Rainey did eventually leave Tony, She's living in Florida with her mother and is now going to college. We highly recommend listening to the entire story at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2016 Third Coast broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxai. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to winners of our annual documentary competition. But you can hear great radio from around the world anytime at thirdcoastfestival.org and on our podcast, ReSound. Coming up after the break, the 2016 Third Coast Gold Award. Welcome back to Best of the Best, from the Third Coast Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxey, And now we've come to the 2016 Third Coast Gold Award winner. Maria Karimji was a teenager in Texas when she first confronted her mother about the genital cutting she underwent as a child in Pakistan. In this unusually candid and winning story, Maria takes us on a difficult journey of what happened next, navigating family, love, her body, and personal relationships. We can't play the entire story, but we do need to tell you that it begins with a description of the first time Maria tried to have sexual intercourse with her boyfriend and the physical pain that resulted. That experience is referenced throughout this excerpt. The story may not be suitable for more sensitive listeners. Here is Maria.
10: When I was seven, my mom told me that I had a bug growing inside of me that needed to be removed. And so she said that we would go and I had to be really brave. And my grandmother told me, oh, you know, so-and-so down the street also got hers removed. And she was like so happy afterwards and felt so good and it barely hurt her. And she jumped up and down and... But the night before the operation, I got scared. I didn't like the idea that there was a bug inside of me that someone would have to cut out. So I laid in bed thinking, be gone, bug. Be gone, bug. Be gone, bug. And then I went to this lady's house, and there were, like, several women that I didn't know there all of the furniture had kind of been moved to the side of the room and she had like laid a rust colored tarp it was just covered in blood she removed my pants and underwear and then cut me I was a morbid child so I like remember asking to see the bug because I was like how is there a bug inside of me and I just remember thinking that that does not look like a bug at all When I was 11, my family moved from Karachi to Texas. We lived in a two-story house in a neighborhood built around the gorgeous long pine trees that had been there for years. Um, I love the house. I love that it had a Juliet balcony over the foyer so that you could see people from the top story when they walked in the house. I was 15, and I was in mosque outside of Houston, and I heard women talking about whether or whether or not their daughters had been cut, and all of a sudden I remembered, it just came flooding back to me, this memory of being in some lady's house on her floor and her cutting me, like a memory that I didn't even remember that I had until that moment. So I waited until like I had the computer to myself and like no one was there. And I searched online. Cutting vaginal area. I don't know like what I put in, like what I searched exactly. Muslim, Islam, cutting. But eventually the end result of what I found was that there was a thing called female genital mutilation. Female genital circumcision. Female genital cutting. Clitorectomy. Where people cut out a large chunk or a small chunk or, you know, the entirety of a woman's clitoris as part of a cultural practice. And they like debated the difference between like female genital circumcision or female genital cutting or female genital mutilation. But the more that I thought about what was happening and the more that I like read about what was happening, I glommed on to the the M, the FGM. Like I thought that it was like, a really violent word. And I thought that it like more aptly described this like extremely violent, horrific memory that I had. And that circumcision made it sound too clinical. And that cutting made it sound too mild. I wanted to figure out if it was a Muslim practice. So I googled Islam FGM. And what I found was just article after article saying that like, it wasn't an Islamic practice. When I googled the specific name of my sect, an FGM, Dawoodie, Bora plus FGM. I found like forum threads that like debated whether or, whether or not it was happening in the Bora community. And like most of the forums were written by men. And so that was like pretty good confirmation that like I hadn't made up the memory. The overwhelming feeling that I like took away from that was how just alone I felt. I didn't really have anyone else that I could speak to about it. I was in a super, super white high school in the suburbs of Texas, and I was already different enough. So after this internet exploration, I was like sitting on the floor of my room. I had these floor-to-ceiling bookshelves in my bedroom, and I looked up and I saw like the copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves that my aunt had bought me. I flipped through it, and it gave some pretty like detailed instructions familiarizing yourself with your lady bits and so i had like a a hand mirror and i took that into the bathroom with me and i just like looked and the book is pretty explicit so it has these like beautiful pencil drawings of different types of vaginas but what became really really apparent to me is that what i had did not look anything like what they had And after a while of, like, looking through it, the only conclusion that I was able to draw is that was because I had been cut. I feel like it could have been days or it could have been months or it could have been weeks. My mom and I were cleaning the bathroom and all I could think about, like, literally all I could think about was the fact that my mother had taken me to this lady's house and, like, that's where it happened and that she was there and she knew about it and was standing there and I was holding the steel wall and I just looked at my mom and I was just like what exactly was that that thing that you told me about? Just exactly like that. Like just one long drawn out not understandable word. She just knew exactly what I'd asked her and she just like was so surprised and so thrown off. She said like all seven year old Bora girls go through this, and I said, Yeah, but like, we didn't have a choice, or something like that. And she was like, Well, I didn't have a choice when it happened to me. And I just remember being like, You didn't have the choice, so you took that choice away from me. Like, I just slammed the door shut in her face, and then she didn't like come after me, like, she didn't open the door, she didn't yell at me for slamming the door shut, like, none of that. Until that moment, I had no idea that that I could even get that angry, that 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 much anger could exist. Kiss me back, he murmured against her lips. I had developed this like weird addiction to Harlequin novels, almost the ghost of a kiss, but a ghost that was enfolding her in a mysterious spell. They were like fun and sexy and like kind of, you know, sweet and sappy and romantic and blissful, and the temptation to believe it was overpowering. I, like, hid them underneath my bed, his eyes fixed on her with a kind of a stuff. He was breathing unevenly. But one day my mom walked into my room while I was reading one, and I literally just shoved it under my covers. We just kind of pretended that she hadn't seen me do it. But my mom has this amazing habit of kind of like bringing up super intense conversations you don't want to have with her while she's driving you somewhere so you can't like escape. She did that while I was, she was driving me somewhere. And she told me that just straight up, like, sex isn't like what you read about in the Harlequin novels. Like, the movies are lying, the books are lying. Like, for us, it's different, is what my mom told me. I wondered, did she mean women when she said us or did she mean the two of us specifically? After I graduated from high school in 2006, I moved to Western Massachusetts to go to a fancy liberal arts all-women's college. It was very, very different from where I lived in Texas. I mean, these girls had hairy armpits, didn't put on makeup every morning, went to class in their pajamas, talked about feminism and women's liberation and just so many different things that I'd never even heard about before. It was a culture shock, to say the least. I booked an appointment with a gynecologist at Student Health Services after, like, months of delaying that right before I was supposed to leave campus. And I went there by myself. I didn't tell anyone that I was going. So I was, like, sitting there in a gown with my feet in the syrups. And the doctor came in and um, she, like, put on her gloves, like, as she walked in. And she was like, let's take a look. And see what's going on or something like that, and then like walked over and she like pulled out like a rolly stool that was pretty low and she like sat on it and then scooted towards like my knees so she could see things and like right as soon as she like got closer, I like clamped my knees shut and like pulled my feet out of the stirrups and started crying, just like uncontrollable sobbing. And she had like I guess seen enough to have seen what was going on. But she, like, stood up, she took off the gloves, said, okay, and, like, let's talk this through. Like, what did you want to accomplish? Like, is there anything else that I should know about? And then um, kind of skirted around the fact that she had, like, been able to see that I had been cut. And then um, so that she really just didn't have any experience or expertise and that she, like, she's really out of her depth and she would help me find other resources if I wanted that. Before my junior year in college, my family's green card application was denied, and we ended up having to move back to Pakistan while I was still in college. As a result of that, I took a study abroad year in Cairo, which is where I met Ryan. And we got to be really good friends, and that eventually morphed into something more after that year, the study abroad year ended, I went back to Western Mass and he went back to college in DC. And we decided to try and make the long distance thing work. The nice thing about Ryan was that he was just extremely patient and extremely kind and never forced me or pressured me or even kind of like moved the conversation into a pressuring place when it came to sex. And but he was just so sweet and so kind. Like he was just such a kind person. That I I really did like at some level know that I could like use him to see whether I'd ever have success at a relationship, even if I wasn't ever ready to have sex. The only person I wanted to talk to about it was my mother. There wasn't anyone else in my life that I knew and I trusted to tell me the truth about what it was like to have sex without like a large part of your clitoris. But at the same time, I didn't know if I was ready or ever going to be ready to hear that my mother had potentially never had good sex or had never found a way to, like, enjoy sex. And I also didn't know if, like, hearing that would make me think that that was also going to be my future. According to, like, my Skype credit, I had exactly 23 minutes to speak to her. And as it rang, as the phone rang, I had, like, come up with, like, six or seven different things that I wanted to say to her. But when she answered the phone, the first thing that I said was, is sex ever good for you? And my mother said, excuse me? And then I heard nothing. And then the door clicked shut. Like she had gone into like a private space to actually like have this conversation. And then I kind of just word vomited everything that had happened, that I was miserable, that I was scared, that I like I don't know if I will ever be able to have sex or whatever. And my mother was great. She didn't like at all at any point in the conversation be like, you're Muslim, don't have sex before marriage or anything like that. But she did tell me that she was scared of sex too. That she had also, you know, very romanticized, idealized idea of sex. No other kiss had ever been so thrilling because she um, used to read Harlequin novels as well. Now she had to have him in every possible way. His mouth drifted down her neck and she drew in a long, shaking breath. And Saxon, those novels, like, you know, basically stood in for love. Wherever he touched her, the result was electric, sending shivers of sensation everywhere, Along her arms, her legs, between her thighs. And then when she first started, you know, after she got married and she and my father were trying to have sex, she would go from, like, being really, really into it to having, like, panic attacks when he got just close to areas that made her uncomfortable. And it took her a while to kind of be able to navigate that or to get to a point where she was comfortable enough with him for... The two of them to actually have sex or for her to feel comfortable during sex and for her it was like a conversation over like extended period of time that got her there and then I saw that the timer was running out on my Skype clock so I told her that I had to go and that we'd talk later bye which was our standard goodbye and like right as I was trying to hang up the phone she just was like I hate them all too you know And I said, what? And she's like, all those women who do enjoy sex or say they enjoy sex or, like, think they can enjoy sex, I hate them all, too. And I just got off the phone, and I was like, wow. And at that moment, I was like, this is definitely going to be the closest thing to an apology I ever get from my mother for the fact that, like, she had me cut when I was a kid. So I... Booked an appointment with a specialist that I had heard about for years, um, someone who like had like kind of created this clinic where she saw a lot of women that had been cut, who were victims of FGM or survivors of FGM, whichever one you want. And I called her office. I didn't have health insurance that year, so I figured out what the like cost would be. Oh, like, some a doctor who's, like, actually qualified to treat me, you know? She didn't say something offensive. She didn't, like, try and comfort me when I didn't want comforting or whatever. She was just, like, very, like, professional about it, asked me questions, um, and then told me that, like, it really just, like, wasn't that terrible, that it could have been so much worse, and that, like, women in my community, specifically in my sect, like, just, like, a lot of them just had... varying like trauma or cutting like both physical and psychological trauma. And she said, like, this is not terminal. Like you don't have a a life sentence on never having sex. Like I can't tell you if it's going to happen, but like I can tell you that it could happen or it could not happen. But you're just going to have to like work on it for like a large chunk of your life. And that like opens up a whole host of other questions. At what point do I like bring up FGM? There's a lot of fear about like whether or whether I even know how to date Soon after that doctor's visit, I moved back to Pakistan to work as a freelance journalist. I still live in Karachi. It's a weird place for me to have moved back to because while I'm definitely still Pakistani ethnically, I feel very, very westernized. The adjustment has been hard, even though I've been living there for four years A few years into my move, I was spending some time with my grandmother when she brought up FGM. I learned a few things from that conversation with her. For starters, I had no idea how little my grandmother understood about female anatomy, and I realized that probably she was not alone. I also really understood that because no one talks about it, there's no real understanding of what f g m is or any conversations about consent or women's bodies or anything like that. The last thing that I learned from this conversation with my grandmother, right when I was leaving her house is that my mother had actually tried to stop my f g m It took me a little while to kind of bring this up with my mother, but when I did, um my mother got really quiet. We were in her room. She was folding laundry. I was sitting on her bed and she just kind of looked at me. Her voice went very, very quiet and very, very sad and said, I tried so, so very hard. Until that moment, I, she'd never told me that she'd fought it or tried to fight it. Or I realized how much guilt she'd probably carried with her for years about what she'd done and how little choice that she probably had in the matter. My mother didn't have Google. My mother didn't have sex ed. She didn't have a copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves. When I think about it, and I think about that story about the bug that she told me, and a lot of my anger comes through the brainwashing of that story that might actually be something that women with less education do believe. I feel a lot of anger towards the fact that, like, we don't get to talk about it, and that once you do start talking about it, we're told over and over again that it's important for us to like keep quiet because we don't need our dirty laundry aired. I was told very explicitly before and after, like immediately after, that I was like just straight up not allowed to talk about it ever. I try and have these conversations all the time. In my, in my area of Karachi, I've become kind of like a little bit of a lightning rod where people already know who I am and how I feel. So a lot of times if they have questions or concerns or need to find other people who are making decisions about not having their daughters cut, a lot of them will reach out to me. It feels really good to to be angry about, like, a cultural phenomenon versus, like, be angry at a person. Like, it's a, it's a different kind of anger. It's a very productive kind of anger. In my head, I'm like, you won't be able to have Good successful relationships. If you believe that like you can enjoy sex, I went to a female friend in medical school who is going to be an OB/GYN. I took like a you know a vagina selfie, and then sent it to her, and she like sent it back with like annotations and like arrows and so on and so forth, color coded like circles, and she was like, "Here's like scar tissue. Here's an area you shouldn't touch." And that, like, it might take a little more exploration. But if I knew the parts that were, like, totally off-limits or too sensitive, then I could work around them. But the fact that, like, I have found a place in my body that, like, feels really good is already
4: progress. Maria was produced by Mitra Kaboli and Caitlin Prest. For the Heart, which describes itself as a podcast about intimacy and humanity. It was based on an essay written by Maria Karimji for The Big Round Table. As Mitra explained in our interview, they've never done a story about female genital mutilation and never wanted to, until they learned about Maria
8: FGM is like a thing that's been on the radar for many, many years, and I never wanted to do a story about it. But when I read Maria's essay, I was like, this is the only story I would ever tell about this. Why? Why? You know, it was the first time that I heard an account about FGM from like the person who is experiencing it, talking about how it actually affects their life and their body and love and intimacy. And it was not a shadowy face in a corner in like a country far, far away where bad people do bad things.
10: Yeah, totally. Um, Part of our MO is sort of trying to tackle, you know, challenging world issues through the lens of sexuality and love and, and sort of using that really intimate personal space to get into really big questions about womanhood and about larger issues. It just seems like such a perfect fit for the kind of storytelling that we've been doing like it almost felt as though all the work that we've done to create this platform was sort of like waiting for a story like
4: this podcasts of course can air things that the radio waves can't and given that was there anything
8: in this story that you felt you had to leave out um generally like I think that's part of our work is to explore those areas that are uncomfortable and taboo because that's what we do. And like that's important. And that side, like that underside that is normally not talked about is what is important um, for us. And that's how you actually make things better and like change minds.
4: Mitra Kaboli and Caitlin. Planning
1: for your next trip?
4: Impressed of the podcast The Heart, winner of the 2016 Third Coast Gold Award. Third Coast is so grateful for podcasts like The Heart that can place such important work in all its brutal honesty. You can listen to this entire story on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. In the noise that comes at us every day, it's easy to feel like you're drowning in sound. Which is why at Third Coast, it's our privilege to help you filter through it all and present it to you as one might be a really great gift. But unlike a precious gift, this is one we don't want you to keep for yourself. We want you to share. Re-gift, if you will. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2016 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Sarah Geis. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Treehouse Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and Bloomberg Philanthropies. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.